everyone and welcome to season two of How Is That Legal, the podcast where we break down examples of systemic racial inequity in the law and policy and talk to experts whose stories of injustice will make you ask, how in the world is that legal? I'm your host, Keith Tobar. I'm a legal aid attorney, history enthusiast, and chief equity and inclusion officer at Community Legal Services of Philadelphia. Today, I'll be talking with Sophia Ali Khan about her new book, A Good Country, My Life in 12 Towns and the Devastating Battle for a White America. Sophia Ali Khan is a social justice lawyer turned writer. She has worked for Community Legal Services of Philadelphia, which we talk about in today's episode, Prairie State Legal Services in Illinois, and the American Bar Association. Sophia's writing at the intersection of politics, race, history, and Muslim America has appeared in the Los Angeles Times, Time Magazine, the Chicago Tribune, Tricycle Magazine, and on several other platforms. Sophia pointedly describes how policies, many with overtly stated racist intentions, are ever-present in our environment, further exemplifying the truism that the past is prologue. We discuss our own lived experience with discrimination and how the forced migration of black and brown people shapes every corner of this country, from the creation of segregation-backed housing developments in Pennsylvania to public space and infrastructure decisions in my home state of Arkansas. So let's get into the show. I'm really excited to welcome Sophia Ali Khan to the show. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Can you tell us about a time in your personal or professional life where you experienced something that shocked you and made you ask, how is that legal? Um, Well, okay, so to answer that question, I'm going to read one of the epigraphs from the book that I found so shocking that even though it didn't fit into the theme of my epigraphs, I had to include it. And it's, um, it's from a Supreme Court case from 1823, and it says... Discovery gives the exclusive right to extinguish the Indian title of occupancy, either by purchase or by conquest. If this principle has been asserted in the first instance and afterwards sustained, if a country has been acquired and held under it, if the property of the great mass of the community originates in it, it becomes law of the land and cannot be questioned. In other words, (laughs) here's my spin. If we've always taken native land, whether we did that by acting like we were buying it or outright stealing it, and that's the way we made America to begin with, then that has to be the law and it shouldn't ever be questioned. And so for me to understand that the premise, the premise of our law and our land was if we stole it to begin with, that's got to be legal. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, it was just a devastating, um, devastating read for me, that case law. Um, what did that bring up for you? Well, it, it put into context a lot of what I found as I researched the rest of the book. And it really drove the conclusion, which I didn't write until I wrote the rest of the book. I really didn't have an idea where I would land after all of the research that I did into the history of America's color lines. Um, but <laughs> this, this case law put that into so much context that if we, if we don't question that original premise, if we don't hold it up against evolving human rights 
ideas of human rights, evolving standards of morality, then how do we reconcile the wrongs of our legacy? How do we start to really look at what the foundations of all of the modern contemporary problems we face are is? So a more modern example, um, when you ask how is that legal, is um, under the Trump administration, when child separation at the border was the policy. I think that was a moment when, a very personal moment, um, because my family are immigrants. When I, I looked at parents with their children coming to the border, claiming asylum, and then having their children taken away, um, there were about 5,500 families separated at the border, and a little over 1,200 of those families are still separated. Oh, wow. And one of the other things I... And so DHS did that by criminalizing asylum seekers, which, again, is this example of not allowing for the, the evolution of our ideas of morality and human rights. So I'm excited to have you on one as a fellow CELSer, um, and it's always great to talk to uh, CLS alums. Um, but I'm... Extremely excited to talk to you about your excellent book, by the way, A Good Country, My Life in Twelve Towns and a Devastating Battle for a White America. First off, congratulations for putting out that book. Thank you so much. um, If I had known it would take five years when I started, I don't know (laughs) if I'd have a book today. Um, But I really appreciate the kind words. It was a labor of love. I'm excited that you didn't know, because I think that this is a really, really (laughs) extremely um, important book. So in the book, you revisit the color lines in each of the places you lived, uh, worked, and worshipped. And you weave America's history of forced migration uh, within your own history. First off, I wanted to ask, what do you mean by forced migration? Well, throughout the book, I, um, I sort of arrived at forced migration, the phrase forced migration, by researching the color lines in the 12 American towns that I've called home, as you noted. And so um, the story of those color lines always, uh, without exception, involved um, a moment of violence, a moment of violent expulsion or removal of brown or black people from the space. Um, Sometimes it involved a removal from a, a specific home, Sometimes it was across town or from a neighborhood. Sometimes it was out of town. Sometimes it was across the country. Sometimes it was into some form of internment. But sometimes it was out of the country entirely. But however you slice it, there was always a forced removal. And so that was the common thread that appeared as I did the research. And it was such a such an obvious common thread that it felt like it had to do with a strategy to preserve a white center or white identity, um, whether that center was economic or geographic or social. Thank you for the definition. Um, With regard to the book, what's your background and how did it lead you to this work? My uh, parents immigrated from Pakistan in the 1960s. They immigrated to Canada and then on after my father finished his studies to the US and after a couple of couple couple of moves within the US we landed in Bucks County in the Delaware Valley um so just outside of Philadelphia mm-hmm. about 35 40 minutes depending on traffic um in a town called Falsington 
you know, my family in Pakistan weren't particularly wealthy. They weren't part of the international elite. Um, they mostly ate, so they weren't considered poor. And some branches even owned property, so some branches were more stable than others. Um, but they were in a very precarious, precarious sort of um, foot into middle class kind of place that sometimes there's space for in Pakistani society and sometimes there's not. Um, that that class sort of broadens or, or narrows depending on the, the economic and political moment. Um, so they've seen hardship. And um, in spite of having seen that hardship when they arrived here, they sponsored family. They always shared resources with family um, and with people who had greater need even when their own resources were very limited. So um, so I grew up sort of just watching all of that. Um, we, were, we were kind of tokens. We were, my parents moved into Falsington uh, just a, a handful of years after the FHA, the Fair Housing Act of 1968 was passed. And so there was, we were in a sort of sea of Irish and Italian faces. And then there was, you know, one black family next to us, a Jewish family on the other side and right behind us, uh, you know, a half Vietnamese family. <laughs> you know, we, we were that little, that little island of token families in, in our development. And so, um, so I, I, I guess I just took all of that in. Um, and it all sort of came to the surface when I went back to take a closer look. In the book you write, color lines, as well as the forced migrations through which they have been drawn, are the defining feature of America's topography. What are color lines, first? And secondly, what are, why are they powerful in the United States and in your life specifically? So color lines show up in a lot of different ways. They show up in, uh, in particular in America, they show up in workplaces, in between school districts. That's a, that's a really big one, particularly in Pennsylvania, um, within or between neighborhoods, sometimes like in Little Rock, they're a highway, a physical geographic barrier within a town. Sometimes they're in the water. Pools are a really common American site of segregation. Same as beaches, so leisure spaces are often segregated. Um, sometimes they look like islands within nations, like Native American reservations or North Philadelphia. They're racially identified, but also they tend to be really radically impoverished by, um, in terms of resources, economies, land values. So the line is a color line, but it's also um, defined by wealth and class as well. So the second part of that question is uh, why are they powerful in the United States and, and in your life specifically? Um, I think so much... So I'll, I'll take the second question first. So much of um, why they were significant to me is because I'm racially ambiguous in some mm -hmm. parts of our country and some parts of my own neighborhood growing up, I passed. And in other places, I really didn't. Um, and so I've always found myself tripping over color lines wherever I am. Sometimes I hear things I'm not supposed to. Sometimes I'm... Um, relocated because someone makes a different assessment of me. Um, but I really notice people noticing me and trying to racially classify me. I've been asked, you know, when I was petitioning for a campaign finance reform bill in Little Rock, Arkansas, I've been asked, what are you? Where are you from? Um, what's your last name? You're not from around here, are you? And so there's always been a sort of challenge to me, um, mostly by 
white adults, but also by white children and other people of color that says, you know, how do I, how do I locate you in this landscape that's so racially um, delineated? And so I tripped over those color lines in every town I've lived in. So it was very easy for me to go back and say, oh, that line that I tripped over, where did that come from? What was that about? Um, what, where was the moment in history when it became not okay for someone like me to be in that place? Why are they powerful in the United States? I think they're powerful in the United States because every one of us is assessed racially in the United States, no matter where we are in the U.S. Um, we, there, we're a sort of society that is at the same time de facto multicultural, mm -hmm. but really obsessed with figuring out where people belong, which category of race they fall into, or ethnicity, or religion even. And I, I loved hearing a, a thing that you said uh, that I think the more I read and study about the creation of, of race in this country, about how uh, it actually is transient. It's a transient idea uh, and where you belong on the spectrum of race or these configurations of identity that we've um, created uh, changes uh, given yeah. where, you know, spatially or given whatever region or environment you're in. So I really appreciate that. And so you grew up in Fallsington, PA, which is right next to the famed white only development of Levittown. Tell us about your childhood there. And why do you say that the segregationist attitudes on which Levittown was built uh, historically are still alive and well today? So, yeah, Levittown is a really interesting place. Um, I grew up in Fallsington, but I, I went to school every day in Levittown. And the two are um, similar in that they're, they're overwhelmingly white. But Levittown was built before the Fair Housing Act was passed. So it was built as a racially restricted suburb. Um, it was whites only. It was 17,000 units. So it was the largest um, Philadelphia area suburban housing development of its time. It was an enormous increase in, in available housing in the region. And this was a time where there was tremendous housing demand among Americans of every color. But because it was whites only, this was, um, this meant that even though Philadelphia was at that time about 20% black, moving out of the, the sort of cramped um, segregated housing of the city was not an option. There were, there were no suburban houses, um, new suburban housing. Um, there was no, rather, new suburban housing available to Black Philadelphia residents. And so, and, and it, within Philadelphia, less than 1% of the new housing being built at that time was available to Black homebuyers. And so, um, so, but Levittown itself, um, was built earlier than Falsington. Falsington was then built um, several years after the Fair, Fair Housing Act was passed. And so when my parents moved in in 1975, 1976, there was this cluster of sort of token uh, families of color that were sold houses in the neighborhood. Um, and, and in retrospect, I always kind of wondered why there was no one like us in the neighborhood and why there was one black family and one Jewish family and one Chinese family and one Vietnamese family. Um, 
one Spanish family even. There was such a stark um, tokenization uh, that in retrospect, it was almost laughable. Although at the time, I didn't really know enough. I didn't have enough context, really, to understand what was going on. Um, but but we were there because of the Fair Housing Act. So it's, it's um, really powerful to go back and, and figure out what what the sort of legal and social parameters were that constructed my childhood in that way. Um, so Levittown today is still 88% white um, and less than 4% black, even though ne- neighboring or nearby Philly is 41% black and something like 39% white. So you still see this really stark um, racialization of this, this sort of iconic American suburb. And so, you know, you see that segregation. You also see the wealth disparity between the school districts, for example, in Philadelphia versus Pensbury School District, which is a, the, le- the school district fed into by Levittown and is fairly well resourced. And so, you know, um, that, that urban suburban color line is still very stark. It was also interesting to see you juxtapose Levittown with Concord Park, uh, which was one of the first intentionally racially integrated suburbs in the United States in the late 50s. Ultimately, uh, Concord Park was almost 100% black by the time the Fair Housing Act was passed in 1968. Uh, what laws and policies do you believe sealed its fate toward segregation? Right up until the Fair Housing Act, and even for some time afterwards, there were a concerted set of policies and practices that really held the color lines in place with regard to housing. Um, developers, for example, could not get generally the way de- suburban development works and even urban development works is that a developer goes to a bank and gets a massive loan to build housing. And then they start to pay that loan back as they sell the houses upon completion. And so banks wouldn't give those massive loans to developers who did not commit that their housing would be whites only. Mm-hmm. And then uh, they also wouldn't provide mortgages to non-white to black and brown home buyers. Um, so, so that alone was a massive barrier to the construction and, and the purchase of, of homes by, uh, by for black and brown home buyers. Um, and then you had uh, the, the federal housing authority that, um, that wouldn't insure mortgages for brown and black buyers. Um, and then you had a national realtors association that was training realtors in practices of steering to keep uh, white buyers in particular neighborhoods and brown and black buyers in other neighborhoods. And so all of these things operated together to, um, to create really durable and pervasive separations between white communities and brown and black communities. Um, Concord Park was really uh, unique in that it was the first intentionally racially integrated suburb, as you mentioned. Um, Morris Milgram worked in concert with some uh, active activists, civil rights invested Quakers in the region to put together the funding for this new, much smaller, so several hundred homes instead of 17,000 homes, much smaller community um, in present day Ben Salem. I believe it was Ben Salem even then, but it was narrow, narrow sort of um, piece of Ben Salem that was bordered by by a couple of highways. And he was 
operating in an environment where he had to um he had to navigate the fact that there weren't a lot of options for potential black home buyers. Mm. So there's this incredible pressure. There's a population explosion. Folks were coming back from the Second World War. They were trying to set up families, set up households, have families. And there were plenty of new options, like Levittown, for mm. white home buyers. And there were not parallel options for black home buyers. So ridiculously, in that environment, um, Morris Milgram, in the with the intention of creating an integrated neighborhood and hopefully proving that there were, his intention was to prove that there was a better way to live, that integration was better, morally, socially better than segregation. But in order to do that, he had to turn away black homebuyers because there was a much bigger demand among black homebuyers who didn't have any housing options. So he was in this crazy position of having good intentions, but turning away homebuyers who were black because he wanted an equal number of brown and black homebuyers, uh, brown and black homebuyers on one hand and, and white homebuyers on the other. And so he was in this crazy situation. Um, and then what happened was that after that initial project of Concord Park, where they did actually for a time achieve a balance between black homebuyers and white homebuyers, white homeowners and black homeowners, what happened was that, um, that as that first generation of homebuyers started to sell, that overwhelming demand for from black homebuyers who couldn't find other options meant that they um, that ultimately the neighborhood became 100% black, um, and so it didn't it wasn't it provided this really essential resource for black homebuyers, but it didn't end up living out the integrationist um, dreams of Morris Milgram because there was so much external pressure on that dream by institutions that just had not changed. Um, enough to allow for it. I don't. I don't know if you can uh, hear the twain in my voice, but I am an <laughs> Arkansan. Um, Are you? I'm very much so proud from Blythefield, Arkansas. I want to give a shout All out right. to my hometown. All right. So I loved um, reading a portion about your experience um, as someone who was not from Arkansas with Arkansas. Uh, so after graduating college, you found yourself uh, in Arkansas in Little Rock where you physically and socially lived on a color line. Uh, you mentioned earlier about uh, the bridge that separates, um, that provides itself as the color line. What was it like to be uh, neither black nor white in Arkansas? It was weird. <laughs> it was super weird. So much so that, um, so much so that there was only one other neither black nor white person that I knew when I was in Little Rock. Um, and her name was Judy Matsuoka. And part of, part of that chapter on Little Rock in the book is me going back to figure out what on earth Judy Matsuoka was doing there. <laughs> and, uh, and, and that, that opens the story that I tell in the book about, um, the Japanese internment camps, Jerome and Rohrer, which are in southeastern Arkansas in the Delta, in the Delta region, um, which are the easternmost Japanese internment camps, um, or were rather. Um, but in terms of the color line that I sat on in Little Rock while I was there, um, I tell, I tell a couple of stories that I can, um, can give you the thumbnail of here. I lived in an apartment that was just tucked under, uh, Highway 630. And when I moved there, I didn't know anything about Little Rock, Arkansas. The only thing I knew was, an Eyes on the Prize series story <laughs> that I had watched on, on my college campus 
Yeah. About, um, I was, I was, you know, the media, I was working in the media center as a, um, for my student job on campus. And so I watched the entire Eyes on the Prize series. And so I knew about the desegregation of Central High. Remarkably, that had never come up in any of my classes, although I was looking for, um, for civil rights history. I couldn't really find it in a curriculum. It was a tiny liberal arts college. Um, but it, that, that history was remarkably absent. Um, so by the time I got to Little Rock, Arkansas, all I knew was this iconic moment of desegregation. But I didn't, I had never been taught the aftermath of it. And so I didn't understand when I came and I, I you know, um, we, we entrusted our realtor with finding us a place. Um, and, um, and we found this apartment on Highway, like right tucked under Highway 630. And it turns out that that highway is the line of demarcation between um, White Little Rock and, and Black Little Rock. That was the highway that was built um, in the decades that followed the desegregation of Central High. With uh, I, I don't think it's controversial to say with the intention of the sort of town fathers and the state leaders that the highway would resegregate the entire town mm. so that the desegregation of schools would no longer really be an issue because it would be logistically too hard to bus kids across the highway. Um, so just the thumbnail of that story is that um, 1954, Brown versus Board of Education is decided, right, saying that separate is not equal. And then um, Brown 2 was decided saying, okay, we got to get rid of segregation, but you can go slow. Right. <laughs> and, then, um, and then in 1957, um, under that sort of gradual integration plan, um, Central High was supposed to be desegregated. The very next, and there were nine students, the Little Rock Nine, who um, did spend one full year one full academic year at Central High, um, and they were tormented. Um, uh, there's an incredible book by their mentor, Miss Daisy Bates, about what they suffered during that year um, and sort of who the players were. But after that year, Governor Orville Faubus of Arkansas shut down all the public schools in town. And so, um, and, then, and then, you know, supported the building of a white suburban enclave to the west of what was then Little Rock. And now that suburban enclave is 40% of Little Rock, and it is still almost all white. And then he supported the building of a public school there, staffed by all white teachers, and then supported the building of a uh, public school on the eastern end of town, not too far from where I lived, staffed by all black teachers. And so north of the highway, there were sort of the, the main economic engines of the town, hospitals, and businesses, the public library, the university, all of that. And then south of the highway into the east was a sort of con concentrated um, set of s some black institute or some pre predominantly black institutions, but they also built um, public housing projects there and used urban redevelopment money to destroy black middle-class housing, specifically the Dunbar neighborhood, which was a, a major black middle-class a neighborhood in uh, north of the that highway in in Little Rock, um, and I can see you sort of close your eyes, and I feel the same way. You know, I'm researching this and reading this, and I think you know it was so concerted, um, it was so intentional um, that it's 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 a hard it's a hard history to digest, right? Um, so they spent a couple of decades and, and millions and millions of dollars building this highway, Highway 630, that still runs across Little Rock. And it's a six to eight lane 
wall in the city. And so, so, you know, when you take a look at the history, it turns out that Little Rock as a whole is substantially more segregated than it was in the 1950s, which is heartbreaking. Um, and so it's not surprising that when you look at Little Rock newspapers today, um, public school segregation is still in the news because they, they undid, undid um, a great deal of the victory of, of the desegregation, of that moment of the desegregation of Central High. In the book, you also explore how Asian Americans played a critical role uh, in the courts developing ideas about race. You discuss a 1923 case called United States versus Bagot Singh Thind. Am I saying that correctly? I want to make sure that I said it properly. I think it's probably Bagot Singh Thind. Bagot Singh Thind. But that's okay. <laughs> I want to make sure I say it right. Um, yeah, no, that's great. Tell us about that case and how do we still use the average white person standards to adjudicate every American's race uh, and status? Okay, so this this is this gives me an opportunity to say that one of the things I love about the law about case law is that there's always a story hidden in the case law, and so the story behind the the Bhagat Singh Thind case, the Supreme Court case from 1923 that you mentioned, is that that. Mr. Thind was a Sikh man from India, and he was attempting to naturalize. Um, he actually has a pretty remarkable biography. Like he was a he was a community leader. Um, he went on to be in the, to serve in the military. Um, but in 1923, American immigration law only allowed white people to naturalize. So Mr. Thind um, made a claim to being white in court, and the court, the Supreme Court, in this case, went through a whole bunch of arguments about you know, language families, like Indo-European languages and various theories about what it meant to be Caucasian and what the definition of Caucasian was. But in the end, the court sweeps all of that aside and says it creates an average white person standard by saying no, no sort of reasonable white person would, would be able to accept some of these folks that are in the, these broad categories. And so we can't accept these categories, right? Like, cause, cause some of the writers of the time included Malays, for example, in, in the category of Caucasian. And mm-hmm. that, that wasn't going to work for the Supreme Court. And so, um, so the court finds that essentially the average white person would see these folks as other. And so we need a different way of, of, um, identifying who is white. And so the, so actually the court holds that the proper test for racial classification, um, is what would the average white person in America be willing to accept as white? Who? Would they be willing to accept as white? And so, so this incredibly subjective, like very overtly right. subjective standard becomes our national legal standard for adjudicating rapes. And it, it's kind of crazy because, you know, we live in a world where race and racism are real things, but only because they've been used by people in power to dispossess other people, right? So weirdly, we're stuck in this situation where to talk about race, even when we're talking about reparative action, we have to, we're stuck oftentimes using the definitions. Right that were built in a racialized environment, that were built in a racist environment. Um, and that's pretty specious. That's a real problem, right? right? And so one of the interesting things, um, identity politics get a bad rap, and I think for, for good reason, but but one of the, the things about identity politics that's really incredibly um, powerful is that they allow us the assertion that we should be able to self-identify. That it's not 
the person with the most historic authority and power in the room who should be able to identify us. We should be able to identify ourselves. Um, and that we're starting to see, I think, a social acceptance of that idea that, um, that I think threatens a lot of people, but I think is really powerful. So we're going to talk about your time at Community Legal Services, but I wanted to make sure that I, I do another uh, kind of pub of your book, A Good Country, My Life in 12 Towns and a Devastating Battle for Right America, because one of the things, uh, the, the hopes for this podcast is to really uncover the historical foundations of a lot of the things that we kind of at this time accept as innate um, in, in the law and also in the frameworks, as you're, you're talking about, the frameworks that we're still using to battle against um, inequity today, how even the frameworks and the playing field that we're on is, uh, is uh, embedded in inequitable racialization uh, by people who were impacted by racist ideology and a lot of is sexist, <laughs> you know, a lot of discriminatory ideology. And so I really appreciate appreciate uh, that about your book. And I wanted to explicitly uh, say that now we get to talk about your time uh, <laughs> as a CLS. CLS. Yeah. Um, so you said that working at CLS, Community Legal Services of Philadelphia, was your dream job. What did you find compelling about your work? I love CLS. <laughs> I should just start I didn't there. Pay her I to love say that. CLS. <laughs> Um, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, there's so much infrastructure that we've talked about that keeps America divided along class and racial race lines, especially and CLS and agencies like it are organized, um, in a way and for us to be able to cross those and be invested in each other's well-being across those lines. Um, I crossed color lines every day as a CLS lawyer. I worked with undocumented immigrants that often, um, you know, go to work in the dark and come home in the dark. And I worked with um, African-American women who are starting their own childcare businesses in their neighborhoods to um, to sort of defeat the, the horror of welfare-to-work laws <laughs> um, and build capital in their own neighborhoods. And those were, those were not people, you know, I talked to clients through interpreters all the time. They were not, these were not people who I would necessarily have been able to um, to serve and to meet and to know um, in America, like America doesn't encourage those interactions. So I I got to feel like I helped um, some of the most vulnerable people in our country assert their dignity and their humanity um, in a in a society that continues to deny it. And so um, so I felt really honored to be able to do that work. Um, I think in an ideal world, we wouldn't have legal aid. And I always felt like I was working. I had to be committed to working um, to make myself obsolete. You know, <laughs> I don't think any of us wants legal aid to be necessary to provide the basic necessities. For, I mean, I think we all believe that the, the state should be providing basic necessities to everyone. And so legal aid shouldn't have to exist at that level. Um but given the context, it was just a, I was just really grateful to be working um, towards a little bit more justice every day. That's awesome. With it being your dream job, why did you decide to leave CLS? 
So I was 33 years old and I, um, I knew that I wanted to have children and, um, I, I wasn't sure how or when that was going to happen, but I, um, I knew that, um, 9-11 had happened eight years before and I had become, I had helped start Care Philadelphia, the, um, Council on American Islamic Relations, um, the chapter in, in Pennsylvania. At that time, it was municipal. It was in Philadelphia. And in that role, I was talking to people throughout the Delaware Valley, all over Philadelphia about Islam and Muslims. And I knew the kind of anger and hatred that were out there mm-hmm. really well, really intimately. Cause I'd go into what were supposed to be like sleepy adult ed classes and I would get dressed down, you know, mm-hmm. um, for things that I had nothing to do with. <laughs> on the regular, you know, like that was my side job. Mm-hmm. Um, although I didn't get paid, <laughs> sadly. Um, and, you know, I thought about having children in that context. And I realized that I didn't feel there was no infrastructure for childcare that I felt comfortable with. Like I didn't feel like I could raise racial and religious minorities without being, being with them, you know, like I didn't feel like there was a childcare context that I knew of that would be safe for them. Um, and I, I just wasn't, I wasn't prepared to um, to contend with that. Now, CLS is a fantastic employer with a great union. God bless them. But we live in a nation that doesn't have adequate maternity leave. So, you know, there wasn't really provision um, unless I unless I made some more money. I also was in the position that so many people are in where if you practice public interest law, you carry a massive student debt. And so when you're between that rock and that hard place, which are really not, again about CLS, but really about our, our lack of a safety net and a federal framework for getting folks educated. Um, you have to make some tough decisions. So I had to make a decision to earn more so that I could raise my children um, through their early childhood. And that's why I left. That's why I left CLS. Totally. But, um, Go ahead. but I have to say, I went like within a, a year and a half, I was back in legal aid because I couldn't <laughs> bear not being in legal aid. I went and did some, like, I did some work for the American Bar Association to protect legal aid funding for like a year and a half. And then I couldn't do it anymore. I had to, I had to see clients. I had to, I had to do legal aid work again. So I, that's awesome. Even it's though short-lived. It's, <laughs> it's sad that you left CLS. I think it, it's great that you still landed at another legal aid and continuing to do the work and, and to be in the fight. And I think what you bring up about uh, the lack of uh, a sustainable parental leave that forces people to make really difficult uh, decisions, I think, is a, is a relevant uh, and, and valuable uh, statement. And so but let's talk about your time a bit more when you were at CLS and maybe also just your work also at uh, other legal aids. Um, you represented clients whose food stamps, welfare, and Medicaid were unlawfully terminated. And you won many of those cases, those appeals. Uh, but you write that these systems are so deeply dysfunctional and set up to deny access, uh, but they cannot bear the weight of any reasonable challenge. Can you explain uh, or expand on this thought and maybe provide an example of a time that happened? 
I think so. So I tell this story um, in the book of, of starting out as a public benefits lawyer. And, and what I noticed was that overwhelmingly myself and my colleagues won appeals, won our appeals of terminations. And that's because the bureaucracies are set up to routinely terminate our clients, um, were set up to routinely terminate our clients. And, and I can't imagine they still aren't. Um, so a client gets cut off because they're not because they're suddenly making a ton of money and should be cut off, but because they didn't turn in a form or they didn't show up at an appointment or because they, you know, um, didn't make a phone call. And, you know, in my day, it was because they couldn't meet these crazy um, bureaucratic welfare to work requirements. So it's um, just like, you know, we don't allow yet brown and black people to to racially identify themselves, self-verify their racial identification. We don't allow poor people to self-verify their income. And so there's this constant chasing down this paper and that paper to to make sure that we prove, you know, someone is just poor enough to be able to to access basic basic services, basic um resources. Um and it's a, it's not cheap to do that. It's we pour tremendous resources into doing that, and for some reason, that is the choice that we have made as a society. That it's our priority to spend money um, chasing folks down rather than giving them that money that they need so desperately. Um, and so, you know, you don't. Um, if you're middle class, you don't have to show proof of income at a, to shop at a discount store or buy a cheaper house in a better school district. But if you're poor, you you find yourself having to to verify exactly how much money you have time and time again. Um, and so what we found by and large was that, you know, the role of an attorney in public benefits is really um, to provide the resources that poverty doesn't allow so many folks. So um, access to the internet, access to a telephone, literacy, um, you know, the ability to go into an office and talk to someone if that's what needs to happen. And so because we could provide that bridge, um, nine, you know, 99 times out of 100, the entire the entire conflict was resolved, and the person was able to maintain their benefits. And when we talk about these benefits, we're talking about life sustaining benefits. We're talking about basic food needs, basic um, rent, if that. I mean, these these are not levels that that even pay the rent. Um, we're talking about utilities. We're talking about really, really, um, really basic things um, that, frankly, every American should be able to to count on. Um, and like I said, this is this is why I think most legal services lawyers would love to be made obsolete because they should just be things that every American can count on. Um, so one story that I recount in the book is um, very early on when I first came to CLS, I represented this beautiful, like she must have been 90 years old uh, lady who lived not far from our office at all. She walked in um, and she walked in when she had eaten every last scrap of food in her house. She had nothing. Her house was one of those row homes where everything to either side of it had fallen down a long time ago. And if you stepped into her home, it was a modest row home, but inside it was like a perfectly immaculate 1950s, like as if you were walking into a movie set. It was like you could tell that her wedding china was there, you know, and she, she had these things that she had preserved so carefully. She'd grown children who had moved away, but she had not a scrap of food in the house. And she was really frail. Like this was not a woman who could get on a bus and go across town. 
um, to a, a food pantry. And it was like right before Thanksgiving, my first, I had just started at CLS in September. And I remember driving her to a food pantry to get food and then driving her home. And that's when I saw her home um, and just being blown away at, um, at her grace and how she was being treated. Um, and just really, you know, feeling the injustice of that moment and feeling like the, the indignity that we make folks suffer who have worked their whole lives. Um, and another example, um, I, um, on the tip of a fantastic paralegal named Rafi Ram, I founded, um, an offsite clinic for emergency Medicaid for undocumented workers. Um, and there was a, there's a sort of free medical clinic that was set up in a church basement for these folks. And I, I did the legal work to get them insurance. I, with a team of, um, some interns and some other folks, um, interpreters, um, and I had a client there who had, um, a prostate issue that really probably was cancer and he needed to, um, he needed to have proper treatment. He needed someone to diagnose and treat the problem. Instead, what happened was he kept going to the emergency room and getting recatheterized, um, which is a really, really invasive procedure, very painful, and also likely to cause infection if repeated. Um, but because they wouldn't assist him in filling out the paperwork for emergency Medicaid, for which he was absolutely qualified, um, he ended up being just sort of circulated through the ER, recatheterized, recatheterized, instead of being admitted and, and being treated properly. And so being able to just fill out some paperwork. Um, and in that case, this is a really interesting example of how CLS um, really bridges direct representation with policy advocacy. In that case, I was seeing so many similar cases that we were able to advocate with the Department of Public Welfare to um, remedy the fact that they had never created a bureaucratic pathway for people to apply for emergency Medicaid. Um, so people like him who had to do things like, in spite of their lack of immigration status, had to, had to put together sort of a package that would make them qualify anyway. Um, they didn't really understand how to do that. There was no specific form. Um, so even though the agency had a federal obligation to provide those people medical insurance, there was a, a less than zero chance that anybody would actually find their way to that resource. And so, you know, again, these are, these are resources that, um, we sort of put unnecessary hurdles in front of so that lawyers become necessary. So what are some of the ways you imagine moving forward with this knowledge though, right? It's one thing to know it. What, what, what ways do you imagine moving forward? There are these iconic moments where American liberty seems to radically expand, you know, um, the desegregation of Central High and the Standing Rock protests and the Black Lives Matters protests where there's more attention on um, police brutality. Um, I think we do have these, the civil rights battles, of course. I think we have these moments, but I think unless we start teaching what led up to them, what's coming after them, until we have that whole story being taught in every public school, I really don't think our odds are terribly good 
at having the critical mass that it will take to change to change our attitudes and institutions in the sort of foundational way that we need to. So one really practical example, I mean, that sounds like pie in the sky, mm-hmm. but here's a practical example from Canada. In Canadian schools and public elementary schools all over the country, they do land acknowledgements. Now, a lot of activists, and I, I see where they're coming from, complain that the land acknowledgements are not enough, right? So a land acknowledgement is, I'm speaking to you from the traditional territory of the Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation. It's Treaty Territory three and three quarters, right? So I'm giving information about who had this land and didn't cede it, and who had treaty rights to this land that I'm on, right? Seems like such a minor thing, right? I haven't given anything back. There have been no reparations. But what I've done is I've, I've um, voiced a reality about whose land this is, about the theft that happened. And they do that in their public schools in the morning, at school events. They do it in political um, federal events, uh, uh, provincial events. They do it at sporting events sometimes. So it's, it's come into the culture, right? There's a consciousness um, of what the colonial, that, that this is a continuing colonial project and that Native people are still here and need to be acknowledged. This, and it needs to be acknowledged that this is their rightful homeland, right? So we see an incredibly vitriolic battle over rights and reparations, but there's a way to get from point A to point B where people have enough of that backstory to say, okay, that's a legitimate conversation. We need to have that conversation. And so I see it happening in these small ways here. Again, it seems performative, but what is that doing? It's raising a certain level of awareness so that that conversation that follows about reparations can happen, can happen with informed and empathetic people at the table. I mean, I think that's where I see the hope. Thank you for your book and thank you for this very thoughtful conversation. I've really enjoyed it. I so appreciate you, Key, and it's um, it's just such an honor to talk with you and to meet you. Um, I miss CLS terribly, so it's a little <laughs> bit like coming home. Well, that was my interview with Sophia Ali Khan. I always enjoy connecting with fellow legal aid attorneys, so I'm really grateful to Sophia for joining us on the show. You can stay connected to Sophia by following her on Twitter at Sophia underscore Ali Khan. That's S-O-F-I-A underscore A-L-I-K-H-A-N. And definitely check out our new book, A Good Country, My Life in 12 Towns, and a Devastating Battle for White America. If you want to ask questions about the show or let us know what you think, please email us at podcast at clsphila.org. Also, while Community Legal Services of Philadelphia offers free legal assistance on a range of civil legal issues, we are not a criminal defense firm. So if you live in Philadelphia and are looking for non-criminal legal help, please visit us at clsphila.org. We cannot respond to questions about legal issues via email. How is that legal is produced by Row Home Productions. Jake Nussbaum is our producer and editor. Executive producers are Alex Lewis and John Myers. Music provided by Blue Dot Sessions. Special thanks to Caitlin Nagel, Zakia Hall, and Farah Zaidi. I'm your host, Key Tobar.